Well, some of the crowd are on the pitch.
It's time to read The Independent Corkboard Researchers Union Soccer Precepts, which go something like this. We believe God gave mankind feet for a singular purpose, so that we could kick the shit out of stuffed pig's bladders and bend homemade spheres of nested trash bags bound with electrical tape like Beckham in the Kalahari dust. We believe you'll never walk alone, and we side with the heavy metal Gagan pressing on the red side of that liver puddle come Merseyside Derby Day. Contrary to the Dacian pragmatism of Liverpool FC's older but trophy-poor crosstown rival. This is for purely aesthetic reasons, though, of course, as the reality is both clubs were founded for working-class solidarity siphoning and brainwashing purposes, most likely. In Everton's case, for proselytizing and as an extension of the St. Domingo's Congregational Church Sunday School, whereas Liverpool FC was brought into being by the Liverpudlian businessman and literal Lord Mayor John Holding, who I guess got into a dispute with Everton's steering committee over stadium plans and land use, and broke off to form his own club. In the ICRU, we believe that the artistry and thaumaturgic technique of painters like Maradona and Ronaldinho dwarfs the admittedly impressive and age-defying running up of statistics by Leo Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. If forced to pick between the purported goats of the past two decades, we choose Messi, of course, for his silky dribbling, impeccable passing, and truly transformative ability to lift the quality of the players around him, seemingly without fail. We also just generally dislike Ronaldo for what he represents, a plasticized, robotic, transhumanist perfectionism and vapid consumerism, as well as a mercenary nature, as shown by the total arrogance of his disastrous Man United curtain call. His glowering Piers Morgan interviews, their friendship is gross, and his egregiously pricey contract with Al Nasser, in MBS's Saudi Pro League. Watching Ronaldo play gives me GERD and heartburn. His CU is like nails on a chalkboard for me. Meanwhile, Messi's mastery soothes, as smooth as some chalky Pepto-Bismol. That said, in this house, way more than a Messi, even more than a Maradona, or a Ronaldinho, our truest heroes are Eric Cantona, jump-kicking a hiling Hitlerite in the Old Trafford stands, or Dr. Socrates taking a transfer to Syria 
and Fiorentina in Italy so that he can study Gramsci in the original language. I mean, just look at Cantona's recent statements on the ongoing Palestinian genocide for further evidence of his status as a political truth-telling soccer hero of a kind that seems to be basically non-existent among the crop of current players. Cantona's and Socrates have largely gone extinct. Our truest heroes include the forgotten proletarian stars of the Marxist-organized Arbeiter Turn und Sportbund, Workers' Gymnastics and Sports Association, the short-lived worker-owned league that was founded to combat the capitalist weaponization of sports as mass ritual and opiate of the masses, and instead redirect it back towards communist organizing goals. The Workers' Gymnastics and Sports Association only lasted for about a decade from the uh, heights of Weimar Berlin until the point at which it was shuttered and um, broken up by the Nazi regime. We lament the influence that quote-unquote professionalization and modern Euro-American athletic practices have had on the beautiful game. We yearn for the return of Lev Yashin, smoking cigarettes in goal, the all-time goalkeeping great, affectionately remembered as the quote-unquote black spider, who was a literal iron curtain between the sticks for the Soviet national team in the 50s and 60s. We yearn for the return of George Best's Beatles-esque hairdo and modulatory dribbling micro-movements. We long for a time before the mechanization and automation of refereeing, when the coked-out miniature matador named Maradona could punch the ball beyond England's onrushing keeper scoring with an illegal handball in a World Cup quarterfinal, and still have the goal count, as modern refereeing technologies like VAR hadn't been invented and implemented yet. The white men have found little space in this contest. It's not true of Olatico Che at the moment. But certainly it's been true of the England team. Haven't seen that much of Hodge or Trevor Stephen. Maradona just walked away from Hoddle then. Valdano. Hodge and Maradona. And appealing for offside. The ball came back off the foot of Steve Hodge. And Maradona gives Argentina the lead. The England players protesting to the referee. But the little man who started it by walking past Glenn Hoddle, that's where the ball came from Hodge. Maradona had continued the run forward, and the goal is given.
Make no mistake, the game is just as unfair today as it was then. Despite the various football authorities' attempts to automate the game into sterilized, emotionless oblivion. And make no mistake, we stan Maradona's scrappiness and unpredictability. His brazen breaking of the rules is made all the more delightful in light of the fact that he, like so many soccer players, grew up poor in the shantytown Via Fiorito, near Buenos Aires, and that Maradona claimed that his quote-unquote hand-of-God goal was a uh, symbolic revenge upon the British for their defeat of the Argentine forces during the Falklands War, which occurred, I believe, um, four years prior to the 86 World Cup. A moment of symbolic anti-colonial revenge? Or was it something else entirely? I will now give you an alternative parapolitical history of the imperial and military context behind Maradona's classic comments. Although Argentina's territorial dispute and grievances with the British were legitimate from an anti-colonialist perspective, from the little I know about it, I gotta admit that I'm picking up a bit of the distinct burning rubber stench of a false flag or psyop from the Falkland Islands. There seems to be an obvious propagandizing utility to the Falklands War for the Argentine military junta of General Leopoldo Galtieri, who had recently succeeded the military dictatorships of General Videla, followed by Viola, during what was termed the National Reorganization Process, the ongoing Western-backed right-wing military rule in Argentina, an individual component of Operation Condor. The bloody Cold War business that sought to tether the political police and security forces of the American-backed fascist governments throughout the Southern Cone through group bonding exercises like extrajudicial quote-unquote death flights where Marxists Peronists and activists would be thrown to their death from helicopters and uh, other activities like the literal massacring of whole villages. Operation Condor counted Secretary of State Kissinger, that uh, national security ghoul or fucking tulpa, and CIA Director George Herbert Walker Bush, 
among its American architects and supporters. Anyways, in 82, the stranglehold of the NRP military juntas on Argentine politics was slipping, and General Galtieri sought to kick off his reign with a bang. He believed that, were the Argentine military to seize the disputed Commonwealth territory of the Falkland Islands, the British wouldn't retaliate militarily, and the maneuver would prove to be a coup for the new regime's popularity. At least, that's how the Falklands War planning and Argentine military reasoning seems to get presented. Now, I'm not necessarily a huge proponent of false flags nor a false flags buff. Part of this is simply because I think most governments in the world, and particularly those in the Western imperial core, are the opposite of averse to shedding blood, especially when it's someone else's. That said, in the Falklands War case, I think that there is ample reason to suspect a false flag of a modified sort. Plus, there's also the Port Stanley incident, when a British Army field report um, erroneously reported that the Argentine forces were flying white flags to surrender, when in fact there appears to have been no evidence of this on the ground. All the same, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who, wouldn't you know it, was suffering in the polls at the time and whose domestic popularity was waning, announced in the House of Commons that same night or day that the Argentine forces had surrendered. She also embargoed the news regarding the Argentine surrender, seemingly so that she could deliver word herself. Accompanied by the Defence Secretary, Mr. Nott. Ladies and gentlemen, the Secretary of State for Defence has just come over to give me some very good news, and I think you'd like to have it at once. The uh, message we've got is that British troops landed on South Georgia this afternoon, shortly after 4 p.m. London time. They have now successfully taken control of Britvicken. At about 6 p.m. London time, the white flag was hoisted in Gritviken beside the Argentine flag, and shortly afterwards the Argentine forces there surrendered to British forces. The Argentine forces offered only limited resistance to the British troops. Our forces were landed by helicopter and were supported by a number of warships, together with a Royal Fleet Auxiliary. During the first phase of this operation, our own helicopters engaged the Argentine submarine Santa Fe off South Georgia. This submarine was detected at first light and was engaged because it posed a threat to our men and to the British warships launching the landing. So far, no British casualties have been reported. At present, we have no information on the Argentine casualty position. 
the commander of the operation has sent the following message. Be pleased to inform Her Majesty that the White Ensign flies alongside the Union Jack in South Georgia. God save the Queen. What happens next, what Mr. Mr. Knott? Thank you very much. What's your reaction, rejoice at that news and congratulate our forces and the Marines. Are we going Good to night, declare gentlemen. war on Argentina, Mr. Thatcher? Rejoice. All indication of its purpose as a publicity stunt intended to revive her political fortunes before the 1983 election. Couple this with the purported motives of Argentine General Galtieri when uh, deciding to try and seize the islands from the Commonwealth, quoting from Wikipedia, quote, by opting for military action, the Galtieri government hoped to mobilize the long-standing patriotic feelings of Argentines towards the islands, diverting public attention from the chronic economic problems and the ongoing human rights violations of its dirty war, bolstering the junta's dwindling legitimacy. The newspaper La Prensas uh, speculated on a step-by-step -step plan, beginning with cutting off supplies to the islands, ending in direct actions late in 1982, if the UN talks were fruitless. There's a growing feeling in Washington that diplomatic efforts should go on, but that Argentina must be made aware that if war breaks out, the United States will firmly back the British. Today, the U.S. Secretary of State Alexander Haig briefed the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on the status of the negotiations. Senator Joseph Biden was at that briefing. He's a Democratic senator who is sponsoring a resolution in support of Great Britain. Based on your briefings with Alexander Haig, how do you right now rate the chances of a diplomatic solution? Well, I think the, uh, the Secretary of State uh, uh, was accurate and his assessment of it uh, was very tenuous. Uh, I'd rather not comment on what was a secret briefing and uh, uh, what in fact the Secretary indicated uh, were the stages of uh, negotiations at this point, except to say that they're ongoing and the administration is hopeful. It's very pertinent what you're being told, you see, because we see the Senate trying to, to perhaps get more involved on the British side. Doesn't well, that depend on how you rate the chances of an imminent diplomatic breakthrough? Well, not really. I believe that, uh, that my resolution, which clearly calls for us to state whose side we're on, which is the British side, uh, will in fact, I believe, aid the negotiating process, not diminish the chances of negotiation. I think the Argentinians must be disabused of the notion, assuming they harbor it, that the United States is truly neutral in this matter. And uh, so I have no, uh, uh, no sense that uh, uh, my resolution calling on the United States Congress to go on record in support of the British would be anything other than helpful. Senator, how do you think it would be helpful? Because conceivably that might topple the Argentinian government. Is that acceptable to you? Uh, no, that is not acceptable in the sense that I wish for that. But the fact of the matter is there's a great deal at stake for the United States and the hemisphere. First of all, 
and for Canada, I might add, very boldly. Uh, the fact of the matter is that if we allow in this hemisphere the settlement of, uh, of claimants, uh, property disputes, uh, by the use of force, we're going to unleash an entire series of actions that none of us want. Secondly, NATO is an alliance upon which we have made a firm and solemn commitment. And it's clear that the Argentinians are the aggressor. It's clear the British are right. And it should be clear to the whole world where the United States stands. All right, you mentioned hemispheric interests. Let's just stick to American interests at the moment. Yes. The OAS has voted that they recognize Argentinian sovereignty. Now, don't you lose something in he hemispheric relations with the proposition you've just made? There is no question that the United States is going to lose no matter what it does. The question is that we are going to lose, in my mind, we lose a great deal more by not standing on principle and not standing with our oldest and closest ally and not standing with the alliance that is most important to the United States of America. Could you tell me quickly how you rate Soviet actions lately in helping Argentina if, if you're not also giving them a whole new opening in Latin America? Negligible. Uh, I believe that Soviet actions are negligible. Their capabilities are limited in the area. There is no evidence that the Soviets are, in fact, making any major moves to, uh, uh, to move anywhere into the hemisphere. Would uh, you be sorry to see the Galtieri Junta toppled? I would be sorry to see the situation change in such a way that there would, in fact, be an increased prospect of, uh, of uh, Soviet and or uh, communist influence in the hemisphere. But I'd even be more sorry if we dashed what is already a fragile and very uh, tenuous situation with regard to NATO and NATO solidarity. Senator, thanks for talking to us. Thank you very much. The ongoing tension between the two countries over the islands increased on the 19th of March when a group of Argentine scrap metal merchants, which had been infiltrated by Argentine Marines, raised the Argentine flag at South Georgia Island, an act that would later be seen as the first offensive action in the war. The Royal Navy Ice Patrol vessel HMS Endurance was dispatched from Stanley to South Georgia on the 25th in response. The Argentine military junta, suspecting that the UK would reinforce its South Atlantic forces, ordered the invasion of the Falkland Islands to be brought forward to the 2nd of April. The UK was initially taken by surprise by the Argentine attack on the South Atlantic islands, or at least that's what they claim, Clawney interjecting. Despite repeated warnings by Royal Navy Captain Nicholas Barker, commanding officer of the Endurance and others, Barker believed that Defense Secretary John Knott's 1981 Defense White Paper, in which Knott described plans to withdraw the endurance, the, U uh, the UK's only naval presence in the South Atlantic, had sent a signal to the Argentines that the UK was unwilling and would soon be unable to defend its territories and subjects in the Falklands. End a big end quote. Notice how the violence supposedly broke out 
with the raising of the Argentine flag on South Georgia Island. Got to admit that, were a false flag theory to be correct, it's almost like the universe is trying to point it out for us. What with the war supposedly beginning with an act of aggression where a group of Argentine uh, marines infiltrated, um, I think it was, what was it, a merchant vessel of some kind? Let's go back and look. Uh, oh yeah, scrap metal merchants, um, and then raised the Argentine flag on uh, South Georgia Island. And then uh, the war ended with this bit of faulty intel regarding supposed white flags flying over um, that one particular fort in uh, the Falklands, uh, the name of which escapes me this second. But you know what I'm talking about. We covered it earlier. Anyways, if the Falklands War was a false flag, which I'm not saying definitively, I would have to do a shit ton more reading to be comfortable with actually going out on a limb with any confidence. But if it was the case, it would probably be a modified false flag of a certain variety. I might be wrong, but I feel like false flag has come to be primarily associated with crisis actors and tragedies that were purportedly faked in toto, at least according to common conspiracy theorizer parlance and usage. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but it often seems like a uh, false flag is used by some to denote something that they believe has been faked entirely. But I think that, regarding the Falklands War, a fairly reasonable theory would be that the Argentine junta and the Thatcherite government agreed upon the timeline and dimensions of the war prior to its outbreak, motivated by the mutual benefit each regime stood to gain. I think there are a couple other indicators of this. For one, if you fast forward through the past 40 years since this very short war, you'll notice that, at least as far as I can tell, the UK and Argentina continue to cohabitate and even dispute the same territories, but without any further squabbles. In fact, in 1994, when Argentina adopted a new constitution and declared the Falkland Islands as part of its territory, I don't believe the British responded in any meaningful way. Furthermore, the media coverage seems to have been majorly censored and controlled by the militaries on both sides during the Falklands War. According to Wikipedia, the use of televised clips and footage of the actual combat was described as quote-unquote half-hearted because it was seen to have quote-unquote negative propaganda value, end quote. 
having skimmed a couple paragraphs regarding the Thatcher government's process of selecting journalists and media personnel to cover the war, which was described as quote-unquote rushed, you can't help but wonder. I don't have this in my notes, but I want to introduce an additional take from an article uh, that I found written by the British writer and journalist Julian Barnes. Let me pull it up real quick. This was published by The Guardian in uh, February of 2002, and the title of the essay or article, however you want to term it, um, is The Worst Reported War Since the Crimean. And this was actually uh, in a television industry subsection of The Guardian, written by Julian Barnes, as I said. And I'm going to just read the first few paragraphs. Quote, In April 1982, I took over from Clive James as the Observer's television critic. I anticipated a cozy period of acclimatization. A uh, new American soap called Dynasty was soon to start followed by the year's main event, the stirring quasi-warfare of the World Cup in Spain. I love that Barnes um, uses that terminology to describe soccer or football, as we'll see throughout uh, this episode, which may stretch into two parts. There is a very curious relationship between um, states international relations, and the global game. Back to the essay, though. Quote, Instead, at coffee time on the Monday morning of my second week, ITV brought us the real thing live, the departure of a British military force to recapture a piece of colonial territory 8,000 miles away. The day was calm and blue at Portsmouth. Two aircraft carriers towered over the waterside houses as tugs shivvied, uh, uh, shivvied, chivied, shivvied them out to sea. Farewelling sailors lined the ship's edges. All was done with royal tournament precision. Then the fleet steamed off into misty longshot while the helicopters strapped to the decks shrank to polished beetles. It looked rather good on television, this war that would doubtless be called off before the equator was reached. The Sea King helicopters, the assault helicopters, are already in position on deck. They can carry 20 commandos, almost certain if there's to be an assault on the Falklands, these Sea Kings will be the first to go in. The sea harriers, the vertical takeoff fighter jets, are also on deck. Some are below. Little did we guess that these were the last sunny, honest, unspun images that we were likely to get for some time, or that the Falklands War would turn out to be the worst reported war since the Crimean while our armed forces defeated the Argentinians, the Ministry of Defense was putting to rout the British media 
all the significant news, good or bad, was announced or leaked from London. Reporters in the South Atlantic had the sour experience of hearing quote-unquote their news being broken for them on the world service. Reports were censored, delayed, occasionally lost, and at best sent back by the swiftest carrier turtle the Royal Navy could find. When relations between the press and the Navy on board, the Hermes, were at their worst, Michael Nicholson of ITN and Peter Archer of the Press Association prefaced their bulletins with the writer that they were being censored. This fact itself was censored. In the age of image, the Falklands War remained image-free for much of its length. No British pictures for 54 of the 74 days the conflict lasted, and image week thereafter. Don McCullen, our greatest living war photographer, was refused accreditation. So was Roddy Llewellyn, no doubt for different reasons. While the task force was at sea, there was only quote-unquote radio vision. The voices of Brian Hanrahan and uh, Michael Nicholson embellished by stills. And when the action on land began, the images were limited and controlled. Official factoids were grudgingly provided by the Ministry of Defense spokesman, Ian MacDonald, a man with the delivery and charisma of a speak-your-weight machine. So the war, instead of being experienced back home as a continuous narrative, was a succession of jump cuts, of sporadic sound and vision bites. The words that endure, gotcha, yomp, rejoice, I counted them all out and I counted them all back. The still pictures, a library shot of the Belgrano, a yomping marine with a Union Jack attached to his radio aerial, the camouflaged face of Max Hastings, the reconstructed face of Simon Weston, the vision bites, departure of the fleet, Harriers leaving the deck, the Sheffield ablaze, helicopters at Bluff Cove blowing life rafts to the shore with their rotors, burial of the dead at Goose Green, Argentinian prisoners with P&O cruise labels around their necks. Nor did these sequences always come in the correct order. If bad news couldn't be hidden, it was certainly repositioned. Thus, the estimate of casualties at Bluff Cove was covered by heartening shots of the QE2 returning home. Given this vacuum and the trifling official opposition to the war, Michael Foote, quote-unquote inveterate peacemonger, in his self-applauding phrase, led a traditionally bellicose labor party. A head of toxic jingoism built up. 
driving round Nottinghamshire at the time, I was amazed that such a high proportion of the population owned Union Jacks. The bullfrog tendency of the Tory party was in full croak. In pubs, it was wise to avoid discussion with learned readers of the sun. It is still a surprise that the newspaper actually withdrew that gotcha headline. Later editions led with the much more caring and concerned question, quote, did 1,200 Argies drown, end quote. Every so often, you would shake your head and think that it couldn't, at this late stage of the 20th century, be happening like this, or at least not for this reason. Perhaps it was all about mineral reserves of incalculable wealth in the Antarctic, which we would lose unless we retained the Falklands. But no, it was really as simple as Borges said it was. Two bald men fighting over a comb. Um, that's probably as good a place to stop as any. So, that's like the first half of this Barnes article from 2002 regarding the lack of uh, TV and even print reportage on the Falklands War in Britain. If you're on Twitter, contrast this with the slew the absolute deluge of um, televisual and uh, self-recorded video of the atrocities that are being committed uh, in the Israeli genocide of Palestinians right now. I think it says something about where your sympathies and solidarity should lie. Back to the dearth of televised news during the Falklands War and a potential thesis that there was something majorly fishy going on there. So you've also got Prince Andrew's uh, heli flying during the 70-ish day campaign, which coupled with the fact that helicopters were purportedly gunned down with some frequency makes you wonder whether the queen mother would have allowed her darling son to fly in harm's way. And then there's an aspect that's very curious and pertinent to our other investigations, namely what was called the quote-unquote Red Cross Box. Quoting again from Wikipedia, before British offensive operations began, the British and Argentine governments agreed to establish an area on the high seas where both sides could station hospital ships without fear of attack by the other side. This area, a circle 20 nautical miles in diameter, was referred to as the Red Cross Box. Um, it was approximately 48 by 30 degrees south, 53 by 45 degrees west, and located about 45 miles, or 72 kilometers, north of Falkland Sound. Ultimately, 
the British stationed four ships, HMS Hydra, the HMS Hecla, and HMS Herald, and the primary hospital ship, the SS Uganda, within the box, while the Argentine stationed three, the ARA Almirante Irizar, the ARA Bahia Paraiso, and the Puerto Deseado. Sorry if my Spanish pronunciations are fucked up. Anyways, juxtapose the civility of this quote-unquote war between Argentina and Britain with the obliterative fusillade of um, American-financed bombs and missiles that Israel is routinely dropping on Palestinian hospitals and even Red Crescent ambulances right now. We'll probably look at an interesting microcosm of fascist ultras culture in Israel a little later on. And this won't be the only reference to the ongoing genocide that's occurring in Palestine, nor the Zionist government's integrality to the uh, American imperial system. But back to the foggy fog of war on the Falklands. Another intriguing quote that I just noticed while scanning the Falklands War wiki page. So, quote, the chances of a British counter-invasion succeeding were assessed by the U.S. Navy, according to historian Arthur L. Herman, as, quote, a military impossibility, end quote. Huh. That's interesting. All of which is to say that it doesn't seem unreasonable to me to wonder whether the Falklands War was preordained. Two last stray thoughts regarding the war and Operation Condor, which we could do a full episode on this stuff, if not a series. Honestly, there's a decent chance that we will do something more in-depth on Operation Condor later on. Plus, it actually won't be the last that you hear of Operation Condor in this episode, either. In fact, we'll probably end by examining a couple articles and State Department memos that indicate that Henry Kissinger may have actually had a hand in fixing the 1978 World Cup. But back to what I was saying. I'm mentioning this because I'm hyper-attuned to Zionist and Nazi collaboration right now, as I've been posting a ton of threads on Twitter about shit like Adolf Eichmann's visit to Mandatory Palestine and the Zionist terrorist cell Ergun's uh, attempt to strike a military alliance with the Third Reich. But wouldn't you know it? The Israelis figured into the Falklands War. Quote, according to the book Operation Israel, adv uh, advisors from Israel Aerospace Industries were already in Argentina and continued their work during the conflict. 
The book also claims that Israel sold weapons and drop tanks to Argentina in a secret operation via Peru. End quote. The other things that I wanted to point out is the sorta Gladio stay behind network and Fourth Reich esque backdrop to the Falklands War. For example, the Nazi spymaster, Klaus Barbie, and the Italian Gladio operative, Stefano Della Chiai, assisting the Argentine Secretariat of Intelligence in their backing of General Tejada's cocaine coup in Bolivia. Again, this is an episode about sports fixing and soccer, so we're not going to go in-depth here, but the CIA-backed um, expatriation of Nazis and Italian fascisti to Argentina is intimately connected to Operation Condor and the extrajudicial mass murdering of likely hundreds of thousands of South and Central American communists, anarchists, Sandinistas, Peronists, uh, supporters of Allende, the labor organizers, etc., throughout the 70s and 80s. Also, since I've been in a give-Zionist-Fascist shit, headspace lately, I'll mention the Mossad's abduction and smuggling of Adolf Eichmann from Argentina in 1960, which once again brings us back to sus Switzerland and Red Cross territory, as guess what Eichmann used for pseudonymous identification to get him into Argentina? without the notice of intelligence networks, read Soviet intelligence networks, that weren't actually down with Nazis escaping and being repurposed to serve American hegemonic interests abroad and at home. Fucking Adolf Eichmann got into Argentina with a Red Cross ID, using the false identity Ricardo Clement. Not only that, but the Nazi-sympathizing Catholic cleric Bishop Hudal of Austria was instrumental in helping Eichmann secure counterfeit papers to get international Red Cross identification. There, I said it. Anyways, it's interesting to note the Israelis arming the Argentines with tanks circa the Falklands War. I would argue that this is consistent with the whole Fourth Reich thesis, and I would also contend that were the Falklands War to have been a controlled conflagration of sorts, that this too is consistent. It very well could have been a PSYOP war to batten the hatches and distract from what was happening domestically in both Argentina and the UK, creating a patriotic false dawn in the process in both countries. 
Alternatively, in view of the fact that the military juntas crumbled in Argentina not long after, I could also see it having been prearranged to provide justification um, for the return to Western quote-unquote liberalism in Argentina and like um, internationally mediated elections. Briefly back to the Mossad's abduction of Eichmann, though. So, as we'll probably get into in part three of the series with Luke from Things Observed, Eichmann collaborated with the Zionists on multiple occasions, at one point seemingly receiving intel regarding a pan-Islamic congress in Berlin and a Soviet radio broadcasting station in return for various privileges granted the Zionist paramilitaries and their illegal immigration outfits during the early Nazi regime. Anyways, this East German journalist, Klaus Polken, or Polken, who published a couple essays in the University of Cal uh, University of California's Journal for Palestine Studies in the 70s, contends that the Israelis were insistent on holding the trial and execution um, of Eichmann in Israel, in part to be able to pressure him against revealing information regarding Zionist collaboration with Nazis and control the narrative more effectively. Israeli Prime Minister and former Jewish Legion member David Ben-Gurion personally made the call. So I mention Eichmann's capture and the numerous Mossad safe houses that were operating in Buenos Aires at the time um, so that we can juxtapose them with the Israeli aid to the Argentines during the Falklands War later on. I also can't help but mention how the CIA declined to capture Eichmann in full knowledge of his location and continued existence, in part because they were afraid of the dirt that Eichmann had on Hans Globke, who was then helping to advise American and West German national security interests and who had formerly helped to author numerous anti-Semitic legislation, such as the Nuremberg Laws, while working with the Nazi government. In my humble opinion, the Falklands War is pretty interesting when considered within that broader historical context of intelligence maneuverings and Argentina's importance in the Western-backed Nazi expatriation scheme. It also shows the way in which sometimes the interests of the vassal states like Israel or Argentina can clash with that of the American imperial core. And then you have the fact that one of the historical territorial differences that evidently served as the prologue to the war was the Argentine occupation of southern Tula 
a trio of isles in the Sandwich Islands sandwiched between Cape Horn and Antarctica. The obvious Nazi connotations of that name, Tula, need no introduction. It may feel like we flew off course here, but this all relates to match fixing in football, as you will see. In fact, the origins of the Falklands War, and therefore Maradona's Hand of God goal and the quote-unquote goal of the century, the Perfetto Golazo that followed up his Hand of God goal in the Argentine 2-1 triumph over Britain. Like I was saying, the origins of um, Maradona's Hand of God revenge upon the Brits and the Falklands War before it may stretch all the way back to four years prior, or even earlier. Uh, I have to double-check the dates. But it could even stretch all the way back to when Argentina hosted the World Cup in the midst of Operation Condor, and the fact that Henry Kissinger uncannily predicted that Argentina would emerge victorious during a diplomatic session with the military junta. And when I say emerge victorious, I mean the Argentine national team during the World Cup. We will discuss accusations of match-fixing during said World Cup at the end. Finally, although I wouldn't dare to disrespect the memory of the fleet-footed footballer from Via Fiorito, I do wonder whether his travails in World Cup 86 and the symbolic revenge against the British might have served some sort of propaganda purpose. Could it be? that this moment of exalted rules breaking in the midst of the biggest globally televised sports as mass ritual event known to man was actually intended as a kind of spell to vanquish the ghosts of the Falklands War. 
Could it be that Maradona's symbolic revenge upon the British in the mediated pitch of nonviolent combat known as football and his transgression of the rules were intended to legitimate the Falklands War and the purported anti-colonial narratives given? Was it, in essence, a sacrificial offering made by the coven of Thatcherite media warlocks and a reification of the British soccer curse. You know, that unholy albatross that hangs about the British national team's necks, the fact they've only ever won the one World Cup, despite the British people's claim of having originated the damn game and the repeated confidence dashings endured by said peoples, as immortalized in the words of its coming home. Could it be that Margaret Thatcher exchanged Argentine World Cup supremacy and reinforcement of the English international soccer curse for her counterfeit military victory? This is wildly speculative and half-tongue-in-cheek, but it's an interesting line of inquiry, all the same. I think it's bad news for the English game. We're not creative enough, and we're not positive enough. It's coming home, it's coming home, it's coming, football's coming home. We'll go on getting back, it's all getting back, it's all getting back, it's all getting back.
Anyways, welcome back to Parapower Mapping, and the first part of our first-ever Cues and Clues episode. I'm admittedly psyched to start making some headway on all these fire prompts and research clues that independent corkboard researcher union members have been coming up with. Speaking of, now is the ideal time to subscribe to the PPM Premium feed over on Patreon, as we only have something like seven to eight prompts at the moment. So if you get a cue or clue in quick-like, chances are we'll get to it sooner rather than later. To kick things off, I also gave all patrons slash Discord members the privilege of submitting a prompt, regardless of subscription tier, so be aware that that offer still stands. Similarly, I'm probably going to shut off free trials pretty soon here, as the Patreon is finally hitting its stride, so make sure to take advantage of that opportunity while you still can. You can find the link to the PPM Patreon in the episode notes. To inaugurate the Cues and Clues PPM series, we've got an incisive Moneyball organized crime, online betting, and sports as mass ritual prompt from none other than Bo Brosey, who writes, Dear Clawney, I have been mulling over what I should ask you for your Q&A and have finally found one. What is your opinion on the potential rigging of sporting events in America and internationally, with the recent legislative decisions in many states to legalize sports gambling, the risk of point shaving, and even potentially rigging of events has many front office executives worried about the prospects of its influence forcing its invisible hand around the neck of clean and fair gaming. A relevant story to this question is the story of Nick Kuhn, a former basketball player at Boston College who was caught point-fixing for the Perla brothers, 
two small-time bookkeepers with connections to Henry Hill and the Luce's crime family. So what's going on? Has crime ruined the sanctity of the game? Was Tim Donahue the tip of the iceberg? Or is there something more? Magnets in the balls to psychically damage hundreds of intoxicated men, strategy of tension style? What did Bill Belichick sacrifice in the locker room? At Super Bowl 51, to pull off the impossible comeback, what does it mean to truly be the G-O-A-T, or GOAT? And then three GOAT emojis <laughs> from Bo. Anyways, thanks and keep up the great work. Oh, shit. I'm just realizing this. Super Bowl 51, you add that up. That's Super Bowl 6. Uh-oh. The um, Baphomet imagery of the Tom Brady goat uh, symbolism is becoming that much more satanic. <laughs> oh, man. I gotta say, this prompt got me so fucking stoked. This is actually something that I've expended a fair bit of mental energy on of late. I've been nursing a spine-tingling growing awareness of just how widespread sports fixing is. During the 2018 World Cup, I became convinced that there were a number of inexplicable referee calls in the final that favored France. And with the advent of VAR, in recent seasons throughout uh, European club football, and recent news stories regarding probes into players doing micro-fixing within games, which is my terminology, examples of which we'll get into later on. This notion is something that has actually accompanied my resurgent football fandom. And, unfortunately for me, the research and reading that I've conducted to prep for this is having a dampening effect on my enthusiasm for the global game and desire to watch club football. You can probably already tell that I'm going to finesse Bo's question a little bit here and redirect it more towards club and uh, international football like a uh, finesse shot into the top right corner, if we're talking in uh, FIFA parlance. This is largely pragmatism on my part, simply because it's the one sport that I really follow, and the one that I have the most historical knowledge about. But a couple finer points on why this question will prove so fruitful and also why this is actually one of the areas of research that I have more of a self-preservationist anxiety about covering. After I make these points, we'll go back and break down a few of the references Bo made and discuss them before moving on. But one of the books that we'll reference quite a bit um, during these episodes is the book by Declan Hill, The Fix, which I think I already have referenced at least once, 
And there are numerous examples in that text that he gives, both of um, him himself receiving like death threats uh, and threats of bodily harm by various organized criminal outfits in response to his journalistic work covering the prevalence of uh, sports fixing in the global game. And then he also gives uh, a bevy of illustrations of players themselves, um, even players getting disappeared, as well as journalists, though this seems largely or mostly concentrated um, in Asia, where um, sports fixing is maybe, if not more prevalent, at least um, has been covered with more um, journalistic integrity, and uh, also where the organized criminal response seems to be a little deadlier. That could be a mischaracterization, but that's kind of the sense I was getting from reading his book. And I'm actually about to give a very current example of a player who has just admitted to having been threatened with having his legs broken by the debt collectors from uh, the illegal online gambling outfits that he's been using. So more on that in a second. And then there's the referee mafia, which, believe it or not, may actually be a real thing. We'll return to it in part two, most likely. But first, soccer as the global game often gets uplifted as this, like, democratizing force that plays a particular hopeful role in world affairs, right? Similarly to the Olympics, it's presented as the one thing upon which all people can agree, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, sexual and gender identity, and the like. But in practice, football actually has a pretty complicated relationship with international relations. And even if you have the most shallow interest or awareness of storylines around the sport, you'll know that mainstream sports media companies will often decry how purportedly inhumane regimes like the UAE or Qatar or Saudi Arabia are investing state-held funds in British soccer clubs. I actually wrote this section before I composed the bits about a potential Falklands War false flag and the direct connection to Argentina's World Cup revenge a few years later, as well as the likely diplomat and South American military dictator-induced bit of match-fixing that preceded it during the World Cup in Argentina in 1978, which more on later. So, we've already begun to illustrate the complexities of this dynamic, obviously. But anyways, according to these pundits, the accusation is that said quote-unquote regimes are using the clubs they purchase stakes in as a means of reputational laundering. 
Now, the same critiques were applied when Qatar hosted the most recent World Cup. All I'm going to say on this point is that this critique is generally one-sided and hypocritical along geopolitical lines, and that Western purported democracies utilize their professional football clubs and international teams in a similar fashion. And I promise you that, even if we did the most cursory digging into the Premier League, for example, we would find that there are numerous private-public partnerships that keep the league humming and that the British state exerts significant influence over the league. That would be my assumption. Much in the same way that the NFL is utilized as a tool to try and build American economic and cultural hegemony. You only have to look at the annually increasing number of NFL games that are being held in Tottenham Hotspur Stadium in London to understand this relationship. I will allude to this in a coded fashion, but if you want one possible example of the dangers of challenging the use of international football for reputational laundering, and this isn't even yet diving into the intersections of pro football and organized crime, uh, which, as I've said, we'll explore more later on. But if you want one example, go back and read some of the stories and speculation about a particular American soccer journalist who inexplicably died of a heart attack at a very young age while in the stands reporting on a recent major international football tournament. I'm not going to say his name, but what I will say with a sarcastic tongue-in-cheek is vaxxed, or perhaps some sort of arterial-plugging projectile. JK, that's satire, folks. (laughs) I think we'll likely explore this more in the second part, but... States around the world aren't the only ones exerting pressure on professional athletes to ensure certain results, obviously. It's almost like the state and organized crime, the boundary lines between the two are admittedly blurry, have triangulated the professional leagues, and in some instances there's probably been pressure applied from both sides. I mean to say that there are a variety of factions at play within any individual moment of match-fixing. The club owners and league officials themselves are another example. Sometimes their interests might align with organized criminal desires to see certain results occur, and other times it may not. The players aren't monolithic either. On any given team, it seems a frequent historical dynamic has been that the players making less are likely more motivated or easier to 
coerce into fixing games than the superstars. But then again, kinda counterintuitively, as we'll see from the Declan Hill book, mafias have historically sought out the leaders or the star players in the locker room and made deals with them because they know that the other players will fall into line if said player tells them to. Maybe it's uh, a captain or the captain of the team. Maybe it's the vice captain. Maybe it's the person who's loudest in the locker room. Or maybe it's the um, recognized star player of the team who exerts incredible influence over the behavior of the other players. I'm glad I didn't put this series out earlier, too, as just in recent days, there has been an influx of accusations against pro footballers who are being probed for breaking betting regulations. Specifically, they're both Italian players. Off the top of my head, I'm thinking of Sandro Tonali, a super promising young box-to-box midfielder who was savvily and surprisingly traded from AC Milan, one of the biggest clubs in Italy, to Newcastle United in England uh, this summer. Milan likely knew about his betting breaches and got one over on the British team by offloading him. <laughs> Just business, baby. It's also interesting to see the racial component and public relations rhetoric um, that has come out regarding the probes into Tonali's bets. Evidently, he even placed illegal bets on his own team through an illegal online betting site. Uh, seemingly, he and his agent are playing it off that he has a gambling addiction to garner sympathy, which he very well may have one. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I have no beef with Tonali. He's a player I admire, actually. But a lot of British soccer fans are right to point out an apparent discrepancy in the FA's response to Tonali's breaches when compared to another player named Ivan Tony, who also plays in England and who is currently serving an eight-month ban for similar breaches. Um, this is due to the fact that uh, Tonali is still up for selection for his team this weekend. Some of it may just be a byproduct of where the respective probes were, and my memory is that um, Tony did continue to play for a, a period, even though the accusations against him regarding illegal betting, which for the record, um, my, my memory is that all professional footballers in England are strictly forbid from gambling, at least on soccer. My memory is that Tony did continue to play um, for a time before his ban was actually enforced. 
But I think part of what people are reacting to, and I, and I also think it's justified even if that's true, is the fact that there has been a lot of rhetoric talking about how Ivan Tony is such a um, bane or disgrace uh, on the game, whereas, like, like I'm already pointing out, when it comes to these other white players like Tonali, uh, the rhetoric is, oh, they have um, a gambling addiction, and aren't they so brave for being uh, truthful about it? Um, so on and so forth. I'm not super tapped in to the uh, soccer journalism uh, related to these gambling breaches in the UK, but that's what I've picked up online and elsewhere. And I think people are probably right to make that criticism. And from what I know, it seems like there are a lot, a lot of racist soccer journos in the UK. And just, I mean, this is pretty much common knowledge, but there are a shit ton of e extremely racist soccer fans in the UK as well. It's a huge problem, as well as in other European countries. I mentioned that Tony is serving an eight-month ban for his breaches, right? Just in case I didn't, I can't remember. But the other Italian player that has just been served a ban, if I remember correctly, and is currently being investigated, uh, is Nicolo Fagioli from Juventus, who, very interestingly, has been banned for seven months and has claimed that it was Tonali who introduced him to illegal betting. Once again, probably savvy PR work to try and offload culpability, and who, uh, most interestingly, has claimed that the quote-unquote debt collectors working for the illegal online betting sites have threatened to break his legs. <laughs> Oof, scary man. I wouldn't want to be in his position. In, I wouldn't want to be in his uh, football boots. Catch a fucking stray studs-up tackle from a uh, balding um, southern Italian mafia meathead uh, right in the fucking shins. <laughs> no thank you. Anyways, both players are talking up uh, gambling addiction. Those are just two pieces of news regarding betting breaches that have broken in like the past 24 hours. The obvious implication being that they're further evidence of the prevalence of match fixing. We'll look at more current examples later on, but I just wanted to touch on those two because of their timeliness. Anyways, we're about to break down the Rick Kuhn Boston College case that Bo mentioned. Speaking of which, Massachusetts, baby! But in response to Bo's cue, as far as what my personal opinion is, I mean, maybe I don't need to say this, maybe I already have, and the evidence I compile will speak for itself most likely, but yes, I think that sports fixing is way more widespread than the average sports fan is aware. 
especially so in professional soccer, which we're obviously going to focus on, but I would assume that it's just as prevalent in the quintessentially American sports as well. All right, let's quickly read this article from Play Massachusetts or PlayMA.com. Some some sort of Massachusetts-based gambling or sports news website that has a helpful breakdown of the whole Rick Kuhn, Henry Hill, and Perla Brothers saga. Pull it up here. It's titled, Full Truth About BC Points Shaving Scandal Still Unknown, written by Julie Walker and published on May 22nd, no, May 26th, uh, 2022, right around the time that um, the great, late Ray Liotta died. Big quote. Shaved down, one could call the story simple. A few college hoops kids helped take down a deadly gangster, or vice versa. Forty-four years later, the full truth about the Boston College points-shaving scandal is still unknown. Any recount of the BC points-shaving scandal should come with a free Charlie card for a story with more twists and turns than the city's T-system. While residents eagerly await March 10th for legalized Massachusetts sports betting, which also, referring back to Bo's prompt, um, is something that's recently been instituted in Massachusetts. It's among that list of 30-some states that Bo gave. But back to the article. We look back on the breach that mixed gamblers and mobsters with student-athletes in the late 1970s. Clearly summarizing this story feels futile, but we'll try. A mobster met a drug dealer in prison, and their friendship continued after their release. The drug dealer, Paul um, Matze, introduced the mobster, Henry Hill, to his friend, Tony Perla. Perla and his brother, Rocco, were into numbers rackets. The Perlas had a high school pal they thought might want to earn some extra dollars. Enter Rick Kuhn, a senior forward for the Boston College basketball team during the 78-79 season. Um, Matze, Hall, and the per uh, Hill, excuse me, and the Perlas devised a plan to rip off bookies without having players actually throw games. Instead, they'd shave points to win against the spread. Kalani interjecting again, but this is actually similar um, to another betting probe that's ongoing that's happening in the Premier League. This player, Lucas Paqueta, who plays for West Ham United and who is Brazilian, and I'm uh, confused about this connection, uh, but evidently he's from a, an island off the coast of Brazil that's called uh, Paqueta or Paqueta uh, Island. And um, it's also his last name, I guess. Uh, but 
evidently um, gambling authorities in, uh, in Brazil, in the country of Brazil, noticed betting uh, irregularities connected to when um, Lucas would get yellow cards in games. Basically, they noticed that there would be a sudden uh, surge in bets being placed in Paqueta Island in Brazil, where Lucas is from. Uh, suddenly, gamblers would, would lodge a ton of bets that Paqueta would get uh, a yellow card in the game you know, that was about to be held. Uh, one of them, I think, was against Aston Villa. Anyways, the obvious implication is that um, whether he was passing information to just his friends or organized crime there, um, Paqueta has been deliberately getting yellow cards to either help his friends or maybe even himself make a tidy profit. All of which is to say within the mechanics of um, online soccer betting, it's an example that's similar to uh, shaving points to win against the spread. And an example of the term that I used earlier, which is micro-fixing. Others may have already coined it, but it's something that I just came up with that I think um, does a good job of encapsulating how this works. Back to the Kuhn article, though. So, um, for example, if the Eagles were favored by 10, the mobsters would want the players on the take to make sure the team won by nine points or less. They'd place bets on the underdog um, and win, thanks to the points, while the players still delivered victories for their team. Nothing in sports comes with a guarantee, though. The ringleaders knew having just one player wouldn't assure the desired outcome. More players, more money, or more problems. So, they go on to use Kuhn for an introduction. They lure in uh, point guard Jim Sweeney, uh, as well as Boston College's leading scorer, Ernie Cobb. And um, to this day, both Sweeney and Cobb admit taking money, but say they didn't really participate. And then, of course, the scheme involved bookmakers across, across the East Coast. The gambling gangsters needed to spread out the uh, wager since, the story goes, many back then had limits of $25,000. Oh yeah, we can't forget the bankrolling bosses. Think of Ray Liotta's character in Goodfellas. Picture him reporting to Robert De Niro's character in the film. Surprise, that really happened. Uh, skipping ahead a little bit. They just have a sentence about Leota recently dying, which is sad, but we already know that. In the movie, Leota played Hill, and De Niro played Jimmy Conway. Um, you probably know about Goodfellas, but um, Conway was a character based off of Hill's real-life mob associate, Jimmy Burke, who, due to his Irish heritage, Burke never received a formal induction into the Luches crime family of New York, but he operated as an associate. As the wallets, Burke and co. ultimately became the scheme's kingpins. Many details of the scandal remain murky. Did it start out with a loss for the gamblers on December 6, 1978, when 
Boston College handily beat Providence, 83-64. In one of Hill's versions, that game inspired Cobb's recruitment. In another, he says the fixing began with a big win for the wise guys when Boston College, favored by 12 points, beat Harvard by just three, 86-83. One undebatable fact, the scheme failed. While the season of points shaving unfolded, an even bigger crime went down that year. Almost $6 million in cash and $875,000 in jewelry was stolen at JFK International Airport on December 11, 1978. Note that this was the exact same year that the World Cup that was likely fixed in Argentina uh, was held, and the Kissinger example that we'll end with. Burke was allegedly the ringleader behind the heist, then the largest to happen on U.S. soil, though he was never charged. Hill got picked up on drug trafficking charges in 1980. His snitching stream began then, and during one conversation with law enforcement, he casually mentioned the Boston College scheme. He'd often say that, compared with other stuff they had done, shaving a few points here and there didn't even feel like a crime. Law enforcement officials were ecstatic. Despite pursuing charges against Burke for other crimes, a conviction for fixing basketball games is finally what got him 20 years in prison. Three years before his arrest, Henry Hill and Jimmy Burke were fixing basketball games at Boston College. Ironically, the team Ed McDonald used to play for. I said, you know, you're completely nuts. I said, you got a real serious problem here. Motherfucker almost leaped over the fucking table. He tried to grab me, but <laughs> he went berserk. Together, Burke and Hill had bribed three players to fix the results of basketball games, including starting center Rick Kuhn, who was dragged in front of the US courts. With Kuhn and Hill's testimony, the FBI could finally bring Burke to trial. Burke was arrested. Suspected of murdering at least 50 people, the mastermind of the Lufthansa robbery would face trial on a seemingly innocuous gambling scam. And on the 27th of October, 1981, began the US versus Jimmy Burke. The courtroom was packed with media, with organized crime figures, and with people who were interested in the case. Henry Hill would once again have to take the stand, this time against his former mafia mentor. I felt like a fucker. I mean, I had to look at him, you know, but I knew that this motherfucker ordered my death, you know what I mean? Before the trial, the FBI played Hill wiretap evidence of Burke ordering his execution. I didn't believe him, you know what I mean? And they played me the fucking tape. I mean, in which they shouldn't have, you know what I mean? When the cops like, I ordered my death, you know what I mean? The whack him. I mean, you know, that... I mean, that's, that's, that's what it became, you know what I mean? Henry was ruthless. I mean, he was a cornered rat. And uh, while he might have been uncomfortable testifying against these people, uh, he recognized that these people were looking to kill him. I was able to look the cocksucker in the eye, you know what I mean? I said, Jimmy, you didn't get me, motherfucker. No, I got you. 
Jimmy Burke was convicted and would spend the rest of his life in prison. Where he died of cancer in 1996. Hill, uh, Hill went into witness protection and died in 2012 of a heart attack. We probably won't ever know the whole truth. Kuhn, uh, Mazet, and Tony Perla were convicted and sentenced to 10 years. Rocco Perla was sentenced to four, and Kuhn was released after 28 months. Cobb eventually cleared his name, and Sweeney was never charged. The stories from all participants have changed in various interviews and often contradict each other. Kuhn allegedly made $2,500 per fix. Sweeney allegedly only took one envelope with $500, but maintains he didn't really participate. Kuhn and Hill say he's lying. Cobb says he received $1,000 in an envelope, but said he didn't really know what it was for. Then it goes on to reference the ESPN Playing for the Mob 30 for 30 documentary uh, narrated by Leota. Um, and uh, let's see, do we want to read any more of this? So at the end here, this is maybe interesting, probably something that I would disagree with. Um, how legal markets can help stop scandals like this. An obvious lesson here, crime doesn't pay. Also, maybe don't do business with mobsters? Opponents of legalized college sports betting argue that adding regulations will only encourage irresponsible gambling. It would also increase the likelihood of scandals like the BC1, they say. Proponents argue that legal and regulated sports betting would actually reduce the chances of another BC scandal. More regulations and laws results in more eyes scrutinizing each game. Adding more legal operators to choose from also means bettors won't need to risk their money with illegal and possibly dangerous bookies. Regulated operators also have safety checks in place to help protect those with gambling addictions. Overall, more legality increases transparency, making it more difficult for shady characters to hide, especially those who, as far back as they can remember, always wanted to be a gangster. And that's the end of the article. How much do you want to bet that this publication PlayMassachusetts.com is some kind of a joint partnership between the government and um, mafia-backed uh, sports books. Yeah, so... <laughs> yeah, it's literally a Massachusetts online gambling website. Your number one information hub for online gambling in Massachusetts. BetMGM, FanDuel Sportsbook, Caesar Sportsbook, DraftKings Sportsbook all have um, coupon, like, de uh, starter deals. Um, yeah, there are, like, coupons listed uh, right on, on the front page. Um, we know that regulated online sports gambling is not going to weed out the uh, 
organized criminal element at all. If anything, it just legitimates it. It's literally just the government and criminals, uh, among whom, who number many among the government coming together to uh, legalize this stuff, which makes it more profitable because they can spread it further. That's enough on that. Back to my notes, though. So another reason that I think that focusing on club football will be conducive for this investigation is that, and this might be confirmation bias, but my sense is that club football and European leagues have played an instrumental role in the proliferation of online betting. From personal experience and recent travels in parts of Europe, my sense is that online betting is even more of a fixture. <laughs> LOL, fixture, there's that pun. Uh, it also references soccer. It's really a double entendre. Uh, it references soccer fixture lists and sports fixing. It'll probably come up a lot in this episode. But anyways, I think online betting is even more of a fixture over there than it is here, and seemingly spread in places like England and Western Europe before it hopped over the pond and began to sink its tentacles in the craniums of the American populace to the degree that it now is. At least on a legalized level. Let's see if I can find any articles that bear this assumption out. So, I just found one reference to the uh, UK having been the first country to legalize online sports betting. Okay, no. Two possible references. One is a website called Londontopia that looks to be some sort of tourism site and possibly not the most reliable, so take this with a grain of salt, but they claim in an article drawing distinctions between the US and UK online sports betting markets that the UK was the first to legalize. I also found a Bloomberg article that's unfortunately behind a paywall, so I've only read a couple of sentences from it, but it was the first hit in my search, and they seem to trace the explosion of online sports betting in the UK back to the Gambling Act of 2005, when Parliament gave betting firms and sports books permission to advertise online sports betting, among other changes to national betting laws. Sorry about the barking. Uh, that's my neighbor's dog. I can't shut it up. Now, there are a couple of historical and current uh, idiosyncrasies of the United Kingdom's online betting market that are worth exploring in slight detail. First of all, gambling is a long and storied pastime for the Brits, one that stretches back centuries, if not millennia, at least to medieval horse and greyhound racing and possibly other manifestations before that. I guess I don't really have a yardstick by which to measure it because I'm no expert of state-sponsored gambling, but the National Lottery in England began surprisingly early from what I'm seeing. Evidently, Queen Elizabeth launched the 
uh, first national lotto in 1566 in order to raise funds to repair the harbors per Wikipedia. And much like today, what with the Powerball billboards and the like that are constantly obstructing our views, you might have been trudging your way down a shit-encrusted alley past the Gog and Magog bar and grill when suddenly, out of the corner of your eye, you spied a scroll stabbed onto a signpost. And on the scroll was advertised Queen Lizzie's Loco Lotto. <laughs> but seriously, supposedly they would affix scrolls advertising the lottery onto signs and the like. Anyways, we won't delve deep into the early origins of the English lottery, but I do have to mention uh, a handful of anecdotes in passing before we move on from this manifestation of state-sanctioned gambling, which is undoubtedly related to online sports betting in myriad ways. Firstly, according to a Trip Advisor review for a Masonic tour that's given in Bath, England, which is a city that was a gambling destination for the aristocracy in uh, Elizabethan England, by the way, as were other quote-unquote spa towns. But anyways, according to this person's review, the United Grand Lodge of England is the second largest independent charitable donor behind the UK's national lotto. Historically, there are some interesting connections between lotteries and masons that I can think of just off the top of my dome. There's Voltaire, the petty bourgeois philosopher and member of the lowest noble tier who was briefly a Freemason and continues to be claimed by Masons today, and who was also imprisoned in the Bastille for a time. In the 1720s, he basically organized a lottery syndicate. The French finance minister had created a national lotto to try and counteract the falling interest rates on government bonds, which France was desperate for people to purchase. So they made a novel addition to uh, national lotteries by creating a lottery system where all the tickets issued accompanied government bonds, if I'm understanding correctly. Basically, you had to purchase a government bond to buy a ticket. Voltaire met this mathematician named La Condamine, who revealed to him that because the underlying mathematics of the system were flawed, if you could come up with the capital and purchased enough of the tickets, you were basically guaranteed to win. I think the other issue with the system was that the number of lotto tickets didn't change regardless of the value of the bond you purchased, but I could be wrong on that. Regardless, La Condomine and Voltaire organized a pool of aristocratic investors, bought out a majority of the bonds and lotto tickets, and then pocketed the winnings, dividing it up amongst the investors based on investment. Uh, not really any differently than what 
um, Burke, Henry Hill, and the Perla brothers got up to in the 1970s. The Voltaire syndicate ran this rigging scam for a little less than two years, pocketing the profits of the lotto winnings time and again. And remember, it was at no cost to the investors. As long as they purchased enough bonds to basically guarantee they had the winning ticket, they couldn't really lose. And even if someone else managed to win on some occasion because of how the system was set up, those who purchased the bonds still had the value of their bonds. So it's not like they'd really lost anything. So that's Masonic Lotto example numero uno. Actually, I guess it's numero duo. Um, Voltaire literally making his fortune, the same fortune that would subsidize his philosophical treatise uh, writing and studies via rigging the lottery. Next, we have another tale from France, this time concerning a Masonic and Rosicrucian curious Italian writer whose name has become a byword for <laughs> circums a lot, basically. I'm talking about Giacomo uh, Casanova, of course. Um, the uh, infamous Italian libertine who called on popes and cardinals and caroused with fellow Freemasons like Mozart and Voltaire. There he is again. We've mentioned Giacomo before in the past in relation to his super pervy hollow earth fantasy about the twin children who fall into Agartha and then proceed to incestuously breed a massive race of humans that overthrow the dwarves that live in the dim, dingy depths. I can't remember if I mentioned this aspect of Casanova's life all the way back in, uh... Comparative Paranoid Analysis of Lodge and Lot, Part 4, Unearthing Hollow Earth. But I'm just going to speed read a couple paragraphs from Wikipedia that detail the time around his return to Paris, his national lottery innovations, and its connection to France's most prestigious military academy, his relationship with prominent occultists like the Comte de Saint-Germain, and his spying on behalf of the um, Ancien Regime, and his secret society membership. Quote, Casanova had matured, and this time in Paris, though still depending at times on quick thinking and decisive action, um, he was more calculating and deliberate. His first task was to find a new patron. He reconnected with his old friend de Berny, now the foreign minister of France. Casanova was advised by his patron to find a means of raising funds for the state as a way to gain instant favor. Casanova promptly became one of the trustees of the first state lottery and one of its best ticket salesmen. The enterprise earned him a large fortune quickly. With money in hand, he traveled in high circles and undertook new seductions. He duped many socialites with his occultism, particularly the Marquise uh, Jean de Urfe, 
using his excellent memory, which made him appear to have a sorcerer's power of numerology. In Casanova's view, quote, deceiving a fool is an exploit worthy of an intelligent man, end quote. Casanova claimed to be a Rosicrucian and an alchemist, aptitudes which made him popular with some of the most prominent figures of the era, among them uh, Madame de Pompadour, the Count of uh, Saint-Germain, de Alembert, and uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So popular was alchemy among the nobles, particularly the search for the Philosopher's Stone, that Casanova was highly sought after for his supposed knowledge, and he profited handsomely. He met his match, however, in the Count of Saint-Germain. Quote, This very singular man, born to be the most barefaced of all impostors, declared with impunity, with a casual air, that he was 300 years old, that he possessed the universal medicine, that he made anything he liked from nature, that he created diamonds, end quote. De Bernie decided to send Casanova to Dunkirk on his, on his first spying mission. Casanova was paid well for his quick work, and this experience prompted one of his few remarks against the Ancien Regime and the class on which he was dependent. He remarked in hindsight, quote, All the French ministers are the same. They lavished money which came out of the other people's pockets to enrich their creatures, and they were absolute. The downtrodden people counted for nothing, and through this, the indebtedness of the state and the confusion of finances were the inevitable results. A revolution was necessary. End quote. And a big end quote. So, are you surprised that this Freemason, who made his fortune by, in essence, going one better than his fellow Freemason Voltaire, um, are you surprised that Casanova was also an avid alchemist. Here's how Casanova went one better. Instead of simply manipulating the predetermined and state-dictated rules of the national lottery like Voltaire, Casanova got in on the ground floor, formulating a new system that would act as a firewall for the kinds of syndicate rigging schemes that Voltaire employed while still enabling himself to make a personal fortune through his control over the wildly profitable enterprise and ticket sales. Can you see how laughable it is that, after having shuttered the National Lottery because of this petty bouge Freemason who fleeced its previous iteration for all it was worth, the crown fell for a proposal by an Italian who was not only friends with Voltaire, but also his Masonic brother. This is also something we may return to later on, as it likely would warrant a whole episode. There's a book that was recently published called Casanova's Lottery that I'm also pulling from here. I haven't had a chance to read all of it yet, but it's a full-length text on Casanova's 
lottery manipulations. an example of Freemasonry's involvement in the actual delineation of football from rugby, an event where the two competing schools of thought regarding the sport came to an accord, or I guess the opposite, leading to the birth of the reformed rules version of football, aka soccer, becoming an actual thing and the uh, codification of its laws for the first time. Reading here from an excellent work called Soccer and the State that we'll probably reference uh, a fair bit in these episodes, and shout out to my brother who recommended this book to me. Um, it's been uh, very helpful. This is actually from the introductory chapter, I believe, which is titled History, Truths, and Myths About Football as a Working-Class Sport. And I'm going to read some of this, uh, paraphrase some of it as well, most likely. Um, and the authors begin, 
Quote, Radical football fans like to portray the game as a traditional working-class sport. This is true in certain ways and false in others. Soccer historians have cited evidence of uh, football-like games in many cultures. They go on to give a laundry list of these games from Roman, Egyptian, to Assyrian, Persian, Viking, etc., uh, ancient Chinese, Japanese, so on and so forth. Um, but the book's focus is the modern-day game of what they call or term association football as it was established in England in the 1860s. They go on to say, Football games in England date back at least 800 years. They have been described as, quote, slightly structured battles between the youth of neighboring villages and towns, end quote. There's that um, combat language again. Uh, returning to the text, with an unlimited number of players, no set time and no referees. The games were played for, quote, settling old scores, land disputes, and engaging in manly tribal aggression, end quote. Apparently, some of them could go on for days, even though the ball is generally referred to as a, quote, leather-bound, inflated pig's bladder, end quote. Some historians suggest that uh, enemies' skulls were used as well. Traditional English football games were people's events, attracting large and excited crowds, which, in their unruliness, offended Puritan principles, worried political authorities, and upset merchants who lost profit. As early as the 14th century, this is another quote that they include here, there were calls for controls on the game. These stem not so much from moral disquiet about the violent consequences of football, but from the fact that, by driving ordinary citizens away from the market towns on match days, it was bad for business. And an end quote. So, we can already see here how the authors whose names are, uh, interestingly, one of them has the same last name as Rick Kuhn. What was it again? It's, oh yeah, Gabriel Kuhn. Um, oh, I guess it's just one author, Gabriel Kuhn. And uh, the foreword was written by someone named Boff Whaley. Anyways, so we were just describing how um, already in the 14th century, Merchants and the uh, aristocracy were calling for controls of these rowdy, unruly soccer-like games that were happening in, um, you know, commons, public areas uh, that seemingly that seemingly were detrimental for business. Moving on, the royals had other concerns. Supposedly, King Edward III of England banned the game in 1349 because it kept his bowmen from practicing their archery skills. Numerous legal attempts were made at suppressing the game over the centuries, all to no avail. In the 19th century, a much more effective way of quote-unquote taming the game was found. Football was incorporated into the public school system. 
this was a reflection of industrialization and urbanization, which had eradicated many areas where the traditional games had been played, and of new mechanisms of social control. Once the game had entered public schools, it was increasingly regulated. So now we're getting back to the period, you know, not long before the time when John Holding would have formed Liverpool FC uh, when engaged in that land and stadium dispute with the Everton um, football club. But football remained a fairly violent sport for some time. According to one report, quote, the enemy tripped, shinned, charged with the shoulder, got you down, and sat upon you. In fact, might do anything short of murder to get the ball from you, end quote. Basically, it was an amalgamation of rugby and soccer at this time. All right, we're almost to the Masonic connection here. Let's see. Okay, so here we go. In 1828, Dr. Thomas Arnold, headmaster at the School of Rugby, yes, that's where the name derives from, cast a first set of rules to quote-unquote pacify football. In the words of a group of football historians, quote, the real violence on the football field was ritualized by regulation, end quote. Football became a sport to keep working-class youth out of trouble and to instill gentlemanlike qualities in the players. Even the churches started to embrace the game, hoping that it would keep youths from drinking and idling. The rugby regulations found wide acceptance, yet interpretations varied from school to school for some decades with the desire for increased inter-school contests, came finally the wish for a commonly accepted book of rules. In 1863, representatives of 10 schools and one football club, here it is, the Masonic Connection, representatives of 10 schools and one football club met at the Freemasons Tavern in London to discuss the most disputed aspects of the game. Shin kicking, tripping, and carrying the ball. After weeks of discussion, traditionalists split from reformists. The former eventually founded the Rugby Football Union in 1871. The latter founded the first football association. The same organization, Clawney interjecting here, that today would uh, ban Ivan Tony, for example, for his betting breaches. And when we look at the Declan Hill text, we'll probably find some other interesting um, indications of the FA's involvement in match fixing, would be my guess. I can think of one off the top of my head, but I don't want to give it away yet. Got to save some stuff for the second part. Anyways, the latter founded the first football association on October 26th, 1863. This marks the beginning of the modern-day game of football, or 
soccer, a variation of association. Although it would take another six years to create the distinct position of the goalkeeper to ban any handling of the ball for outfield players and to reduce the number of players to 11. By 1871, the game had pretty much taken on the form that characterizes it to this day. I'm going to skip to the next paragraph. Uh, Scholars have argued that the 19th century regulation of the game reflected the emergence of bourgeois capitalist society. Prescribing the number of players and the size of the field has been linked to the standardization of measuring size and weight for economic interests. The league's tables have been compared to the demands of bookkeeping. Stipulating the time of play has been tied to the rigorous supervision of working hours. There probably lies some truth in these claims. Yet they hardly discredit the game as a mere capitalist invention. Commonly accepted rules are prerequisites for games to spread globally, which creates enormous potential for international community building. Besides, soccer might be framed by a number of regulations, yet they are simple and few and leave plenty of space for creative innovation, one of the game's most beautiful aspects. I don't necessarily agree with everything in the paragraph I just read. Uh, most of it. Um, I think the main crux of it, or the main question, is the degree to which uh, capitalist co-optation of the game has occurred. That's probably where we'll leave uh, soccer versus the state for right now. We'll return to it in the next part. But we got to skip forward like a century to return to uh, something related to Henry Kissinger, Operation Condor, uh, the Dirty War in Argentina, and match fixing that I've been teasing since the very beginning of the uh, episode. I'm going to read a couple articles that I found online on this really interesting website. It looks like it's a WordPress hosted page that's called Amateur Sport. Um, it's actually worth a look. I'd, I'd check it out if you're interested in uh, the differences between professional and amateurism and um, the relationships between uh, international and professional soccer and international relations. The header on the page says, Friendship First, Competition Second a uh, amateur sport website. We're going to start with this article, um, Operation Condor, played out in the 1978 World Cup. And I quote, The international controversy over the alleged match fixing between Argentina and Peru at the 1978 World Cup is one of the events that needs clarifying, writes Vicky Palais, um, football's world governing body, FIFA, has launched an inquiry into the alleged deal, struck as part of the infamous Operation Condor. 
And then uh, Vicky opens with a quote from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, interestingly enough. Once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. We tend to forget our past, yet there comes a moment in life when history begins to trouble our minds and emotions and prompts us to relive bygone events, and it is only by trying to see them more clearly that we can restore our peace of mind. The international controversy over the alleged match-fixing between Argentina and Peru at the 1978 World Cup is one of the events that need clarifying. Football's world-governing body, FIFA, has launched an inquiry into the alleged deal. Didn't we already say this? Um, I think it was in an earlier header or something. But in the 1970s, Peru and Argentina were both ruled by military governments. On May 24th, 1973, General Jorge Rafael Videla uh, was nominated as the de facto president of the Argentine junta established following a bloody coup. Thousands of people were killed and went missing during his rule. Brazil, Chile, Bolivia, and Uruguay also fell victim to military dictatorships. In 1973, these countries would all have hailed Washington's plan to create an anti-communist center in Latin America. The plan came to be known as Operation Condor. U.S. death squads were then allowed to travel freely all across the continent, except for Cuba, kidnapping and executing people suspected of subversion or dissent. Coordination was effected from a headquarters at a Panama Canal base. Peru was a signatory to the Operation Condor Treaty. The Peruvian leader at the time, General Francisco Morales Bermudez, who came to power on the back of a 1975 coup, dismantling all the populist programs of his predecessor, General Juan Velasco Alvarado, 1969-1975, has always denied the country's involvement. The austerity measures imposed on Argentina by the International Monetary Fund in 1978. The IMF drove the nation to the brink of bankruptcy, splitting it along the social lines. Public protests, strikes, and revolts shook the country to such a degree that Marxist ideologues came to believe all prerequisites for a revolution were now in place. But there was no consensus inside Argentina's left camp, with the communists obeying instructions from Moscow, which feared a revolution would undermine its status quo with Washington. Reminder, these aren't my words, this is uh, Vicky's. Um, that said, this website seems pretty good, and uh, generally um, MLM, or communist, or socialist-friendly. I mean, I was just looking at their 
uh, about Paige, and um, it looks like one of their uh, biggest focuses when it comes to advocacy is um, advocating against, like, the embargoes against Cuba and also misrepresentations of um, Cuba's accomplishments on a sporting level as well as culturally, economically, and uh, beyond as a socialist republic. Back to the text, though. In the early hours of May 25th, 1978, 13 Peruvians were detained on subversion charges in Lima and Arequipa, uh, including two admirals, a journalist, and 10 leftist leaders. They were put on a plane, taken to Argentina's Hui Airport, and assigned to the 20th Infantry Regiment as prisoners of war. After that, they were transferred to the basement of the Federal Police Central Department in Buenos Aires and coerced into signing a request for political asylum. According to one of the detainees, Ricardo Napuri Shapiro, the original plan was to apply the quote-unquote escape law to them and throw their bodies into the sea from a helicopter. Kalani interjecting, this is the death flights. This is an example of the death flights that I referred to earlier in the episode. Uh, Shapiro says they owe their narrow escape to a journalist who smelled a rat and took pictures of the aircraft and its passengers at the Hui airport. Once published in a local periodical, his photos and commentaries caught on with national and foreign media. The news spread across the world through the thousands of reporters who were covering the FIFA World Cup in Argentina. In this situation, uh, Videla's regime had no other option left but to send the prisoners to Europe. But the story does not end here. During the 1978 World Cup, Peru and Argentina allegedly struck a match-fixing deal for their semifinal. The idea behind it was for the uh, Argentinian team to play the Dutch in the finals. Argentina needed a four-goal victory to advance over Brazil, an enormous margin at this level of competition, especially since Argentina had a weak offense. They'd only scored six goals in five games, and Peru, a stout defense, six goals allowed in five games as well. As a result, Peru lost the game to Argentina with an improbable score of 6-0. to zero. Oh shit, dude. <laughs> Remember how I just said that uh, Argentina had scored six goals in the preceding games and Peru had allowed six? And then in this game, exactly six goals were scored? Oh no. Secret satanic numerology. 666 right there. Happens every time. <laughs> this game fixed by Videla, Kissinger, and the Peruvian general, who I can't remember. Oh, yeah, Bermudez. 
was a satanic ritual. Um, just fitting perfectly in with Bo's prompt and thesis about uh, Super Bowl 51. We're, we're right back to it. Uh, okay, don't take that too seriously. All right. Uh, Argentina beat the Netherlands in the final 3-1 to one after extra time. Holland refused to attend the post-match ceremonies after Argentina's alleged stalling tactics before the match, when they came out late and questioned the legality of a plaster cast on a Dutch player's wrist, allowing tension to build for the visitors in front of the crowd. There is evidence confirming suspicions that Jorge Rafael Videla and Francisco Morales uh, Bermudez put pressure on Peruvian referees to help Argentina improve its international image. What President Videla said to the Peruvian team's captain, Hector uh, Chumpitas, uh, in the locker room before that historic match remains a mystery, nor do we know the content of Bermudez's phone conversation with uh, quote-unquote Querido Chumpi. In a 1998 interview with Buenos Aires's La Nación Daily, the Peruvian team's Argentinian-born goalkeeper, Ramon Queroa, or Queroga or Queroja, described as inadequate um, the lineup formed by the manager, Marcos Calderon, and made it clear, Calderon, uh, sorry, my pronunciations are really bad, Marcos Calderon, and made it clear he suspected some of his teammates of complicity. He said that, quote, of those who benefited from the deal, some were to die and others were to become dead to football. Huh, trying to wrap my head around that quote. Of those who benefited from the deal, some were to die, and others were to become dead to football. Meaning that uh, people were killed in retaliation for their involvement, or um, when the military juntas that had organized it uh, fell out of power. Eventually, something happened to them. Covering up tracks, maybe? I'm not entirely certain. Um, this is stuff that I'm still learning about. Quick disclaimer. Also, I've just discovered some um, Portuguese language documentaries that I believe uh, have been shown on ESPN in South American countries like Brazil and Argentina um, that are called, uh, I believe it's Memories of Lead, and it's specifically about the relationship between Operation Condor and club football in South America. Uh, there are a couple different ones, at, at least two, one that's focused entirely on Brazil and another that's focused entirely on uh, Argentina in which I'm assuming this stuff is going to come up. Uh, I haven't had a chance to watch them yet. I literally just found them today. 
the subtitled versions of these documentaries luckily are on YouTube and they only have like 80 views or something. I don't think they're um, very well known. Uh, in fact, I, my memory is I found one Telesur, uh, like English language article that referenced them. Um, I just came across the stuff when I went digging, doing internet searches for anything that had the words Operation Condor and soccer or football. Um, in in the text. So, before part two, I will have seen both of those documentaries, which will probably uh, help us to flesh out and expand upon some of the stuff that we're talking about here. But let's continue with this um, with this article. I can't remember if I yeah. So we were ending with the the quote about how some died and some became dead to football likely meaning that their careers were finished. Quiroa also said some of his teammates, like the defender Manzo, had ostensibly underperformed in that match. Suggestively, a deal on Argentinian food aid to Peru was signed shortly after the match, with 23,000 tons of wheat pledged in annual supplies, and several Peruvian military officers were awarded decorations by General Videla. Bermudez, for one, received Admiral Guillermo Brown's sword from the repressive army chief Emilio Macera. This caused a great stir in the FIFA and a thorough investigation could shed light on it. If the match-fixing suspicions are confirmed, Argentina may face penalty, a penalty, with its win over the Dutch in the World Cup finals to be declared null and void. Argentina's federal judge Norberto Oyarbide, meanwhile, has ruled that Videla and the Junta's Interior Minister Albano Harwindhui should offer an explanation over the kidnapping and torture of the 13 Peruvian nationals seized in their country and transferred to Argentina as part of the Operation Condor in 1978. He has also ordered detention and subsequent extradition of the Peruvian dictator Bermudez. It remains to be seen just how far the arm of justice will stretch out in this case. Videla and Harwin de Hui, I'm sure I'm fucking that pronunciation up, I'm so sorry, uh, but they have long been held responsible for the disappearance of 30,000 Argentinian citizens during their junta regime. Bermudez, who has always been protected by his country's subsequent governments, is now 90 years old, and there is little chance of him ever admitting to his crimes and paying for them. The important thing, though, is to establish the truth and to demonstrate to these and other dictators that the memory of their past crimes will haunt them until the end of their lives. Big end quote. And then it says, Vicky Palais is a Peruvian-born journalist. Uh, and it looks like this article was edited or translated by somebody with this 
amateur sport website. Yeah, it's it's a great article. Initially, her use of the phrase uh, Marxist ideologues, I maybe wasn't crazy about. Um, that could be a translation as issue anyway. So let's now move to uh, another article from Amateur Sport. And this is what we're going to conclude with today. And this is directly related. This one is titled Kissinger and the 1978 World Cup in Argentina. Big quote. Nate Jones of the National Security Archive in Washington on declassified documents linking U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger to the covert plans of the Argentine dictatorship of Jorge Videla to subvert the 1978 World Cup in Buenos Aires. Kissinger had already informed the Argentine government of U.S. support of the use of arrests, mass disappearances, and the murder of civilians to combat quote-unquote terrorist activities, the same phrase that they're using today in Israel and Palestine, known as the Dirty War and the infamous Operation Condor. Part 1. Looks like this was written in 2009. Today, the 1978 World Cup hosted by Argentina is widely remembered for the victorious Argentine team's uh, alleged stalling tactics and the refusal of the defeated Dutch players to honor their hosts at the post-championship ceremony. Today's quote-unquote hot doc shows that the World Cup also contributed to a quote-unquote less repressive atmosphere in Jorge Rafael Videla's Argentina with fewer arrests, disappearances, and killings. This 21st of June 1978 cable from the U.S. Embassy in Buenos Aires to Secretary of State Cyrus Vance cites the World Cup as the reason for fewer government arrests, an increase in the number of prisoners released, as well as those authorized to leave the country, which reads as deported, end quote. Um, this, the embassy reports, is because, quote, police and military forces in Argentina have been under strict orders to avoid reactions or incidents which would give foreign visitors and press fuel for criticizing the country's security practices, end quote. The Videla Junta received far less international attention than the Pinochet regime in neighboring Chile, but its human rights abuses were of a much greater magnitude. According to an Argentine uh, military intelligence estimate, 22,000 people were killed during Argentina's national reorganization process between 1975 and 1978. During this period, Argentina also participated in Operation Condor. We know this clandestine cooperative between Southern Cone intelligence agencies to assassinate, uh, eradicate communist influence, so on. As this hot doc alludes, the embassy viewed the Videla's 
the Videla Junta's arrests, deaths, and disappearances, which the previous administration tacitly supported, with revulsion. I'm assuming this must have been during the Carter administration. Yeah, I'm right, it was. That makes sense. Okay, so uh, where were we? So the embassy uh, at that time, in the Carter administration, viewed the junta's arrests, disappearances with revulsion, compiled a 10,000-name list of abducted and disappeared. The author of this article writes, Today's hot doc is also important as it portrays another instance of a government willing to support the killing of civilians in the name of defeating terrorism. It also shows that while the decrease in political persecution during the World Cup was minimal, enhanced international media coverage during international competitions can temporarily bring attention to human rights abuses by the hosting authoritarian regimes. Now we move to part two. Oh, so I guess this thing was written in two installments. This is from December 4th, 2009. Uh, and the, the journalist or author writes, in honor of the qualifying teams of, 2010, of the 2010 World Cup, give France a hand for eking in, this week's hot doc is part two of our analysis of the 1978 World Cup. Last time we looked at the quote-unquote less repressive atmosphere the tournament brought to Argentina during its dirty war. This week, we'll look at a document which recounts Secretary of State Henry Kissinger quote-unquote talking football with the Argentine Foreign Minister Guzzetti. This June 6, 1976 memorandum of conversation was obtained by Archives Southern Cone Documentation Project and published in 2004. It serves as the quote-unquote smoking gun proving that Secretary of State Kissinger informed the Argentine government of U.S. support of the use of arrests and disappearances to combat Argentine terrorist activities, quote-unquote. The meeting was alluded to, but not released, in 4,600 State Department documents that Secretaries of State Albright and Powell declassified after the repeated requests from victims, relatives, human rights organizations, judges, and U.S. congressmen. The CIA and Pentagon declined Albright's request to participate in the declassification program, perhaps concerned about the impact of disclosing support of a regime that murdered nuns and kidnapped children. In this conversation with the foreign minister, Kissinger declared, quote, We want you to succeed, affirming U.S. support for the Argentine junta. 
He also condoned its terrorism policies, advising, quote, if there are things that have to be done, you should do them quickly, end quote. Turning to sports, and here, this is the crucial part for uh, our current purposes. I mean, the Operation Condor stuff is <laughs> even more important, but obviously, I'm just saying, in relation to the focus of this EP. So, turning to sports, Kissinger promised, quote, no matter what happens, I will be in Argentina in 1978. That is the year the World Cup will take place, end quote. And here is the smoking gun for the possibility that Kissinger was involved in fixing the 1978 World Cup. Then the secretary aptly predicted, quote, Argentina will win, end quote. And you can actually, if you go to the Amateur Sport WordPress website, they link to this, um, what did they call it? Memorandum of Conversation from June 6th, 1976. And you can look at the document that describes this conversation in detail. So, back to the text. Today's hot doc also alludes to the underlying tension between the career foreign service officers staffing the U.S. Embassy in Buenos Aires and their boss. The embassy viewed the Videla Junta's actions with alarm and revulsion, even compiling the 10,000-name list they already referenced. Secretary Kissinger, however, accepted these deaths and disappearances of trade unionists, students, nuns, etc. as necessary for a stable and non-socialist Argentina. Ultimately, Kissinger's reassurances undercut the embassy's position. Argentine generals were quote-unquote euphoric with Kissinger's signals that they could continue their war against leftists. The U.S. ambassador to Argentina wrote a quote-unquote sour note, which they also linked to in this article, complaining that Kissinger's meetings with the Argentine foreign minister had not conveyed the quote, gravity of the human rights problem as seen from the U.S., end quote. When the embassy confronted the uh, Argentine government about human rights abuses, it was rebuffed and told that Kissinger, quote, understood there the ruling junta's problem. As the disappearances continued, an out-of-power Kissinger kept his word, returning with his family as a guest of Videla to watch Argentina win the World Cup. So Kissinger was literally there with his family when this happened. Some believe Argentina's victory was fixed, and most concede that it bolstered the domestic and international standing of the Videla Junta. The newspaper editor, who was Argentina's most prominent political prisoner, recalled, quote, we political prisoners were all Dutch that day, end quote. That day being the final, of course. They supported the Dutch against their own country. Oh, this is also important. 
we're almost done, but while visiting, Kissinger gave a press conference decrying President Carter's new human rights policy toward Latin America as quote-unquote romantic and stated that the junta's human rights abuses should not be condemned, quote, because they are fighting for all of us, end quote, uh, as reported by the AP on the 24th of June, 1978. He was just such a little diabolical shit, wasn't he? All right, this is the final paragraph. Because of the Argentine victory, one of Kissinger's earlier quips to the foreign minister could not be tested. He had earlier calculated that, quote, if you can control an Argentine crowd when Argentina loses, then you can say, you have really solved your security problem, end quote, and a big end quote. All right. Well, thanks for listening to part one of the very first PPM Cues and Clues episode, and there's going to be a lot more uh, of this coming in part two, which I'm excited to get to. So um, stay tuned, and please support the show. Like it, rate it, review it, give me a follow on social media. You can find me on Twitter uh, if you search for Parapower Mapping, or if you type in um, my actual, I guess you call it a username, or yeah, username, probably not handle. I don't know. I could be switching it around, but it's at Clonny, K L O N N Y, pin, P I N, underscore, gosh, G O S C H. Give me a follow there. I share lots of threads, uh, my thoughts, generally stray ones, um, sometimes ones that are a little more uh, tightly wound. And lastly, if you enjoy the show, please go to uh, the show's Patreon and subscribe to it if you can afford to do so. Your support helps me to keep doing this, and it's greatly appreciated. That's all I've got. Hope y'all have a great whatever. So long.
porque no vas a entender las finales que perdimos cuantos años la lloré pero eso se terminó porque en el Maracaná la final con los azúcar la volvió a ganar papá muchachos ahora nos volvimos a ilusionar Yeah.